Welcome to the Best Ever You Show with your host, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, helping you live your life to the fullest. How? Real people, including celebrities, real advice, real places, products, and businesses, real life stories. It's all right here for you with this radio show, printed magazine, websites, community, and more. Remember to visit us online, too, at besteveryou.com. And now here's your host, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino. Good morning, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to the Best Ever You Show. We have a very special show for you today with ICI Sarah Holden and Shelly Antonewicz coming on for the full hour to talk about everything retirement. We've been kind of tweeting this morning uh, about everything retirement. So if you do have questions during the show today, please feel free to tweet us at Best Ever You or ICI, and we can get your questions answered. I know on the show we did on Monday we had quite a few of those, so I'm hoping we kind of had that, that same thing going. So it's really nice that you're here with us. And uh, Sarah and Shelly are going to join us for the hour to share smart ways to make the most of your retirement savings plan and get the latest on what other investors are doing when it comes to mutual funds and exchange, exchange trade ETFs or exchange trade funds, your ETF, sorry about that. Um, I wanted to share a little bit about the history and the mission of the Investment Company Institute, or ICI, before we get started, and, and uh, welcome, Sarah, to the show. The, the Institute was established in 1940 in New York, and ICI has worked to advance the interests of mutual funds, their shareholders, directors, and investment advisors throughout its history by pursuing and helping secure a variety of public policy objectives. The Institute engages in three core missions, encouraging adherence to high ethical standards by all industry participants, advancing the interests of funds, their shareholders, directors, and investment advisors, and promoting public understanding of mutual funds and other investment companies. These three objectives are essential organizing principles for the many and varied activities in which the Institute participates on behalf of funds and their shareholders, and today ICI serves as the spokesman for funds and their shareholders before policymakers, opinion leaders, and the global media. And I, I love Sarah. Welcome to the show. I want to I want to hear your voice before I keep re- reading things. Hello. And thank Hello. You for being thanks here. so much for having me. Yeah, I, I I think this part is this part a little bit of the investor outreach part that ICI is so known for. Yes, indeed, because we really love talking about saving and saving for retirement, and there's some, you know, simple things that people can do to really get themselves on the right path. Wonderful. Yeah, and that's, so we're going to have this full hour with you guys and all of your expertise and knowledge, and I want to make sure people know before we get started with, you know, the, the deep questioning here of you, that people can follow ICI.org, that's the website, also ICI on Twitter, and then ICI is also on Facebook and LinkedIn, and the Facebook page also is very active. You can go to at ICI.org, and that comes right up as Investment Company Institute. So there's, they're very, the ICI is very uh, interactive in social media. And um, bef- so, Sarah, before we get started with all the questions, you're a nationally known retirement maven. I love that word. And Ph.D. economist, and you specialize um, uh, you, well, you lead the ICI's Retirement Investor Research, um, and we're going to talk with, uh, with Sarah today about investing in your 401k and preserving your nest egg when changing jobs or retiring. We're going to talk about maximizing savings by taking advantage of opportunities outside the workplace, including individual retirement accounts or IRAs. 
We're going to help develop our understanding of investment options, including target date funds, domestic and international equity funds, and domestic and international bond funds. So if I just lost you, please know that we're going to explain those um, well so that you know what they are before you leave this call. And also Sarah's going to talk about the similar similarities and differences between generations of savers from like baby boomers to millennials, um, touching on the growing rollover trend from 401ks to IRAs as boomers enter retirement. And with that, I just want to make sure that um, you know that as you're listening that this show is sort of geared toward multiple age groups. It's not just geared toward, you know, 40-year-olds or 70-year-olds. You know, it, it, we're going to cover the cover the whole age range here because investing and retiring is is so important to all of us and um, I'm going to keep talking for one more minute because I need to introduce Sarah properly. Um, Sarah conducts and oversees research on the U.S. retirement market, retirement and tax policy, investor demographics and behavior and international issues. You get to explain what all that means, Sarah. (laughs) Um, She's responsible for the analysis of 401k plan participant activity using data collected in a collaborative effort with the Employee Benefit Research Institute, EBRI, um, known as the EBRI ICI Participant Directed Retirement Plan Data Collection Project. That's awesome. Um, In addition, Sarah analyzes the role of mutual funds in the retirement marketplace, including defined contribution plan and IRA markets. And you oversee, or Sarah oversees the IRA investor database, which contains data on more than 10 million IRA investors and allows analysis of IRA investors' contribution, rollover, and withdrawal activity and asset allocation. Um, Sarah is also responsible for managing household survey research on a range of topics relevant to the fund industry and policy information. And I thought this was really interesting, too. You um, worked for a number of years um, at the Research Division of the Federal Reserve Board. Um, Sarah is a graduate of Smith College and holds a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Michigan. So, wow, have you got a lot of awesome things that you do. Do you want to, like, summarize what that all means for us in case we somebody just went, wow, what a bio. <laughs> That's all that means. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the key takeaway is um, the Investment Company Institute, we spend a lot of time analyzing and understanding U.S. retirement savers, and we do it from a variety of angles. So, for example, we keep track of how many assets are earmarked for retirement. And so right now we have $28 trillion earmarked for retirement. So that gives us an idea of the size of the nest egg, but it doesn't tell us about, well, who's holding that nest egg. And so to do that, we have the 401k database where we're able to see how 401k participants allocate their assets, how big their account balances are. We have the IRA database where we study contribution and rollover and withdrawal activity. And then we also do household surveys so that we could actually talk to U.S. households and ask them, If you rolled over to an IRA, why did you do that? What was your motivation? So it gives us a really well-rounded view of what people are doing as they're over their careers saving for retirement. Awesome. Um, Let's catch somebody young right off the bat here and and hook them into this show. What would you say to, for example, maybe a a 21-year-old, 20-year-old, you know, 21 to 25-year-old listening right now? Why should they listen to this? 
Well, they should listen to this because they'll be just starting out their careers, and chances are that the first job they get, the type of retirement plan that they'll be offered will be something like a 401k plan. So this is a defined contribution plan, and they will be given the opportunity to participate and contribute to the plan. So the first thing they want to do is make sure that if their employer has a plan, uh, what kind of plan it is, if they can contribute, and then they want to start contributing to that plan uh, because the earlier you start, the more time you have for those savings to compound. Now let's go to the very uh, other end of the spectrum, and let's talk to somebody maybe who's 65, 70, maybe even 80 listening. Um, what benefits might they get from listening to this today? So we'll, we'll be talking a bit about IRA investors, and those investors tend to be the folks who are uh, a bit older and later in their careers or potentially already retired, and we have a lot of research that tells us how it is people manage those IRAs through those golden years in retirement. So we've got information on 401k plans, which really cover the whole age distribution, and IRAs, which also cover the whole age distribution, but have a lot of older folks who have rolled over to consolidate their assets in one place so they can manage that nest egg in retirement as they start drawing down and taking money from it to spend in retirement, which is why they saved it to begin with. I can, I can tell from your tone and everything that you absolutely love this topic. <laughs> I, can, I can just tell you have such a passion for this. Um, why? It's so important, and I, I worry that you see so much in the press, it's very discouraging. There always seems to be stories of people aren't doing the right thing, people aren't saving enough, and I worry that people are going to get discouraged because, you know, we really, this is something that everyone has to do their part, and the 401k and the IRA, they are powerful savings tools. So, for example, if you are that young worker who's just starting out, once you've figured out you're enrolled, the next thing you've got to do is make sure that you take full advantage of the employer contribution. Do you know nine out of ten participants are in a plan where the employer puts money into the people's accounts, but often to get that employer money, you have to contribute as well. And so you want to be sure that you get all of the employer money that's really due to you. It's part of your benefits package. And so you want to be sure to take advantage of that because, again, this is a great way to get not only your own savings in, but money from the employer put in to help you build your nest egg as well. Yeah, I, I, I want to elaborate on that for a second be, and just share a personal story, if you, if you don't mind, because when I w I'm 48 right now and a mom of four, and I remember my very first job exactly like what you're talking about, and, and I had no clue about money. You know, it was the first job out of college, and, and I went to a meeting, and someone said, here's a 401K, and if you, if, if you do this, that, or another thing, by the time you hit this age, this will happen, you know, that kind of thing. And it was, it's exactly what you're saying. Um, I put my money in, they matched it, and if, if you don't touch it for a really long period of time, it's, it's great. Um, is that what you mean by, by what, you're, what you're saying? Yeah, so exactly. So be sure to participate. Uh, the 401k offers a great tax advantage that typically the money that you contribute is pre-tax, so you get that upfront deduction. While the money stays in the plan, all of the capital gains and the distribution dividends and interest and all the earnings on it are not taxed. They just keep growing and growing and growing inside the account. And it's not until you reach retirement when you start taking the money out that it gets counted as your income at that point. So they offer a a 
great tax advantage and a really powerful tool because it's relatively painless. Do this little by little, paycheck by paycheck, and make sure that you take full advantage of that employer match. Let me give you an example of what the employer match looks like. So the typical match that we see in 401k plans is that the employer will put in 50 cents for every dollar that the participant puts in up to 6% of their pay. So if the person agrees to contribute 6% of their pay over the year, the employer is going to put a whole additional 3% into the account for them, and that's a really great boost to your savings. So you want to be sure to do that. And I think the other decision you have to make um, as you're signing up and starting the 401k is you have to think about investing as well. Yes, and that was that was. I think that's the tricky part for me was learning all the different ways that you can um, invest. Um, that that was that that. I mean, I remember that being very confusing for me, not knowing anything about it, and I really did my homework. Do you want to touch on that? A yeah, bit? I think. Yes, indeed, because we've had a lot of learning over time on this, I think, in terms of 401k plan design. So the typical plan has more than 20 investment options in it, and the plan sponsor has carefully selected those options to be sure that they're offering you a range of risk and return. So there'll be um, international equity funds, there'll be domestic equity funds, there'll be bond funds, there'll be balanced funds that invest in a mix of things. There'll usually be some sort of a cash option like a money market fund. Typically, that's geared more towards the older participant who's, you know, approaching retirement. So, But you've got this full range of investment options. And some people look at that and they go, wow, great. There's more than 20 things and I'm going to build my portfolio. And isn't this fun? And then other people look at that and say, I am really just a little overwhelmed. I'm not really quite sure what I should do about this. And now there's a whole lot of ways where you can get help in the 401k. And really the simplest solution is to invest in the target date fund. Uh, Three quarters of plans have a target date fund in their lineup, and about half of participants are invested in target date funds. And the way that works is all you have to figure out is the year you expect to retire. And then you pick the fund that has the date that's closest to that year. So they're typically in five-year increments like 2040, 2045, 2050. You pick that fund, and you just your investment in that fund, your contributions into that fund. And what that fund will do for you is it will be diversified every day. So right now it's diversified. It will also rebalance for you over time. So when you're young and you've got a long time in the market – You can have a lot in equity, so you can take advantage of the growth of equities. But as you're approaching retirement and the fund is approaching the target date, it is rebalancing for you to become more focused on income because when you hit retirement, you're going to sort of be flipping a switch at some point from the accumulation phase to the decumulation or the spending phase, and this fund is going to automatically rebalance to line up with those goals. How um, it's just it's such great information. I, I wish I had this when I was twenty. <laughs> it would have been really helpful. Um, and and let's go back to that twenty-year-old for a second, or whatever age it might be. I'm just picking twenty, you know, from a hat. Um, but if what about fe- let's talk about fear, like that overwhelmed person, because I do remember feeling that and thinking, wow, I have a lot to learn here, and uh, this seems really important and something I should should focus on. Uh, what about the people who can't quite get over that? You know, there, there, a lot of people look 
think of money or think of fun- investing and so forth as something like, I don't really need to worry about that, or I don't really want to know that, or I'm not good at that. or you know, There's a lot of different responses when you bring up the word retirement, investing, mm-hmm. 401K, and so forth. Can you tackle that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's where the uh, 401k plan will have a website that has a lot of information. Uh, The record-keeping firm may have phone reps that you can call and talk to. You can also, there'll often be seminars or webinars that give out the information. And I think that the way the plans are designed now, they're geared toward making it easy and having some rules of thumb in place. So some plans actually just automatically enroll you. Uh, so automatically put you on the path to saving. Uh, we'll set an initial contribution rate for you. We'll also typically have that contribution rate go up each year. So as you're, you know, each year when you get a pay raise, a one percentage point more will go into your 401k. So it's kind of painless. It's just as you're uh, growing through your salary through your career, your savings can go up over the course of your career. And they'll also typically put you in that target date fund where an investment professional is going to keep up diversified portfolio that is going to readjust for you over time. So I think there's a lot of uh, guardrails around the 401k in terms of really trying or trying to shine a light on what would be a good path for a lot of people uh, so that you end up on a good path. That's great to hear. And I remember taking some of those classes and, and making some of those phone calls as well. So that's great information, although there was no real website at the time to go to back then that was you know marvelous and magnificent so that's probably something that's really really helpful to people as well um in in the in this time you know in this day and age um but yeah definitely technology comment but <laughs> yeah oh, no no I, no I I I hear you I think really technology has helped us so much in terms of making things interactive making it so it's layered so that you can start with here's the target date fund and you know here's the 20 options if you want to look at those and also there's a lot of uh plants now have mobile apps so that you know for the young person who's got their life in their hand on their phone they can see it displayed in a way that they can read there. Uh, Many providers or plans also send emails to participants saying, um, did you know you're not taking full advantage of the match? Uh, Click here and you you can change that. Or uh, did you know uh, this one you'll find relevant in a couple of years? You you just turned 50 and you're now eligible to make what are called catch-up contributions. And a catch-up contribution is if you're 50 or older, you're allowed to put extra money into the plan, the idea being that perhaps when you were younger, you were you know, saving for a home, you were starting a family, you were paying for education, you had you know, competing savings goals, and now that you're 50 or older and you can really focus in on retirement, policymakers recognize, well, gee, wouldn't it be nice to let people put even more in at that juncture? So uh, you get an email when you turn 50 saying, guess what, you can do catch-up contributions now. So I think really technology has made uh, this process a whole lot easier for folks. Yeah, it, I I agree with you completely. Um, and the other thing you just touched on that was genius was um, the the competing. I love those words. Competing. I think you said competing saving interests. Um, I I can't even tell you <laughs> how that affected me when I you know because I, I you know I have I have four boys and I remember thinking wow how am I going to do this all with a house payment a car payment saving money saving for their college I mean they're Boy, does that sum that up nicely. Um, when, you, when you feel that way, what do you recommend people do? 
because that that's real right there um a sickness i mean there's so many things that get in the way of you know having this perfect retirement fund when you hit the right age right so i think the first thing is uh we're, don't put perfection up as your goal because then you'll feel, you know, do you ever feel you hit something perfectly? So you want to really do the best you can. And I think the thing to do is to make a, a budget for the household and figure out what are these competing priorities and uh, look at, there's a lot of calculators online where you can kind of figure out, well, am I putting in enough to get to that nest egg? Will I be able to put in more to maybe uh, catch up? But I think it's really important, if, if at all possible, to really make sure to take advantage of the employer contribution because that really is money that you leave on the table if you don't do that and then work around you know that you then need to you know say for the home uh, for for education for yourself maybe for your children as well so have those and um, just find ways to budget I for example um, I'm an economist and all the economists here we literally eat lunch at our desks we bring it in from home so that we aren't going out every day we save money by bringing in lunch and being economists we usually eat at our own desks, but every now and then we do get together in a conference room and have our lunches together. But just think of there's lots of little ways where you spend little bits of money that if you were to just not do that and put it away for either the education, the home, or retirement, it would really put you in good stead. Yeah. The um, What do you think of like the concept of um, short-term versus long-term thinking added into that? Yeah, so it, it, there is a concern, of course, that, you know, we, we're so focused on the short term, it's hard to think about the long term. You know, we do a survey of U.S. households each fall, and this is one of the examples of where we want to talk to people and learn from them in terms of what their views are. And so we ask uh, households that have 401k accounts, uh, what are the features they appreciate about the account? And we have a whole bunch of them say that, um, well, 91% of them say that the employer-sponsored plan helps them think about the long term not just their current needs and how important that is to have someone do that. So I think it's just it's a, always a, a struggle of there's the short-term needs. I, I need to you know pay the mortgage or pay the rent and I need to put food on the table. But then you've got to think about the long-term me. Uh, you know that you in the future is going to have those same needs and you need to put some money away to be sure that you can take care of them. We have a, que- a, a tweeted question to us right now. Do you mind um, answering a question from the public? We'll give it a go. Okay, yeah, and if, and if you need to pass, pass, that's fine. <laughs> um, so this person has given us their age, too. Thank you for that because that helps. Um, this is a 25-year-old person who is wondering, when they go to uh, sign up for the 401K, do they have to take advantage of the full percentage? So, like, if it says 6%, can they just do 3 and they want to know if they do just the three, for example, like a 3% um, type thing, does the company still match three or does that decrease a little bit <clears throat> based on yeah, what they so- do? Yeah, great question. question. So you can um, contribute. You get to select how much it is you want to contribute. So that's a choice that you have. So if that person says, you know, I can really only afford to do 3% right now, they'll still get 50 cents on the dollar up to the 3%, which means the employer will be putting in 1.5% for them. So you still get the match of the 50 cents up to whatever level you go, um, whether it's 3, 4, 5, or 6. Uh, so they'll still get 
some employer money, they just won't be getting the full amount that they could be getting. But if 3% is what they can do, and they get the 1.5% on top of that, and then maybe next year they make it 4%, and the year after 5%, they'll eventually get to the full match. All right. Um, and that set off another tweet. So <laughs> you get another one. There's another question. And um, this person just sent another tweet with their age, too. So thanks for listening and doing that. Um, so this is a female age 43. Um, she wants, she says, talk about life getting in the way. That was a good point. Um, she said um, she wants to know if she should pay off credit card debt before investing. Yeah, so this is always a, 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 a good idea to look at your whole balance sheet because you you know if you are um, saving but that means you are incurring very high interest credit card debt it probably makes sense to work on paying down that debt. So that is an, another way to help your overall financial picture. And then once you've got that in order, uh, you know, focus on saving for retirement. So you, you, because you won't be coming out ahead if you've invested and you're paying, you know, something like 19% in interest. So you do need to think of the whole balance sheet, the debt, as well as the assets as you're managing your way forward. All right, one more. You're getting one more, and then we'll move on. Um, someone asks, does your 401k plan have anything to do with your credit rating? I don't know. I don't know that either. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I've never heard of that. That's a good question. I've never We're thought of it. We're going to follow up. And, yeah, can you, can you um, maybe answer that after the show? Yeah, um, I can. And just post a comment or um, tell, let me know and I'll post the comment. Okay. So, all right. We can play Stump Sarah, too. <laughs> no, really? Stump Sarah on Twitter. <laughs> no, we won't do that. All right. We're going to keep going. Um, so, clearly, retirement at at a, a, a topic that people want to talk about. And you spend a ton of time, I'm guessing, studying this. What do we know about people's retirement savings? What do, we, what do you know about that? I know it's a, kind of a broad question. Yeah, so I think when we think when we get up to the point uh, where we're nearing retirement, uh, we know that eight out of ten households have retirement accumulations. So they have either a 401k or an IRA, or some have defined benefit plan promises or benefits that are coming to them. And this is in addition to Social Security. And we actually haven't talked about Social Security on the show yet today, but I think that we should step back and and just reflect on that for a minute. Social Security is the wide and strong base to our retirement system. So it's it's a mandatory plan, it's pay-as-you-go, and it's a defined benefit so that when you reach retirement, there's a formula that they're going to use based on your working years and what you've earned over those years to generate a, a real annuity for you, which is a payment that will last the rest of your life and if you have survivors, a surviving spouse the rest of their life. So it's a it's a big uh, part of our retirement system. So we have Social Security, which is a broad, strong base. So you want to pay attention to that. Uh, make sure that your Social Security statement, you can look at this online, make sure that it correctly reflects your earnings because when you get to retirement, they're going to look at all of those years of earnings to figure out what your benefit is. Then in addition to that, we have what we've been talking about, the 401 the IRA, or the defined benefit plan. And when we get to retirement, a lot of the money is in the IRA or the individual retirement account. And what we know there is when we look at folks who have IRAs and they're 
in retirement, they start taking the money out. And in fact, uh, the rule that most of them use is a rule that the government has put in place. So if you have a traditional IRA and you've turned 70 and a half, you have to start taking money out. And the amount that they have you take out depends on your remaining life expectancy. So it's like a little bit of a withdrawal. It's like maybe 4% is being taken out that you have to spend or take out of the account every year so that you can spend it. People typically spend it on living expenses uh, to our to you know fix the roof or uh, to uh, pay for an emergency or health care. So there's a whole list of reasons on why folks take the money and what they spend it on. But the main rule that people use basically is hold that nest egg, steward it through retirement, and draw on it little by little based on your life expectancy throughout retirement. So um, we were talking about – well. It, there's four tips that you talk about um, when you when you speak, and and you've got contribute, invest, preserve, like you were just saying, and then is there a fourth to worry about? Yeah, so uh, we about? talked about the, the first thing, you know, contribute, make sure you're doing that, make sure you're getting the employer contribution, invest, ask yourself, am I do-it-yourself and I'm going to pick amongst all the options or would I like something like a target date fund? Preserve would be as I'm changing jobs, you know, roll that amount over, save it, preserve it, don't cash it out. And then the fourth thing is to really um, stay on top of this by taking advantage of all of the educational material that's out there. So um, IRAs are offered by a wide range of financial services firms. They all have tools and calculators on their websites. Your 401k plan will have tools and calculators on that website. And so there's a lot of places where you can get some really interactive and interesting things to, to, to help you figure out, you know, are you on track with your saving? And then how am I going to manage it in retirement? So not everybody works for an employer, and not everybody works for an employer that offers a retirement plan. Uh, what do, for example, I own my own business and so forth. So what, and then I've, I've worked for companies that don't have the, those types of retirement plans. So what can somebody do um, in, a, in a case where they don't have these options? Yeah, so if you uh, don't have a retirement plan at work, uh, you can actually open up an IRA on your own, and it offers you the same tax advantages that having that 401k plan would. And interestingly, um, if you're working and you have a non-working spouse, you can actually set up an IRA based on your earnings for your non-working spouse. Now, I'm an economist, probably don't want to come to me for advice on romance, but I thought that would be a great Valentine's (laughs) Day present, you know. Have, a, have an awesome. IRA. I, I really think about you. Uh, so it's uh, IRAs. So seriously, IRAs are, a, um, you know, are available at a wide range of uh, financial services firms. Uh, so again, you can, if you're a do-it-yourself investor, you could go straight to a mutual fund company or to a discount broker to open an IRA. If you're someone who'd like a bit of help, you can go through a financial advisor or a full-service broker to um, open up an IRA. And once you have the IRA, basically you contribute to it. The contributions grow tax inside the account. You don't pay any taxes while they're doing that. And then when you take the money out in retirement with the traditional IRA, that's when you pay taxes. Can I keep you a tiny bit longer, just a couple more minutes? Sure. We've got some, some tweets here coming in also. Um, how does somebody decide between the traditional IRA and the, the Roth IRA? 
Yeah, so that's a complicated question, and some of these uh, financial services firms will have a column for traditional versus Roth to help people think it through. But the key considerations really are have to do with what your tax rate is when you're contributing versus your tax rate when you're taking out. So with the Roth, uh, you pay taxes up front, but then you withdraw tax-free. And so if you're in a low tax rate right now, uh, you might want to do the Roth contribution because you're not going to save that much on your taxes, and maybe later on you'll be in a higher tax rate. So that might make sense. If, on the other hand, you're in a very high tax rate now and you anticipate that in retirement, because Social Security is very lightly taxed, you'll probably have a lower tax rate, traditional might make more sense. So you want to try to think about what's your tax rate now versus what your tax rate will be when you take the money out. And the other thing to think about is how are you considering this that bucket of money? Uh, with the traditional, you typically take it out relatively evenly, uh, sort of uh, based on life expectancy or sort of a, a set amount each year. With the Roth, because it's not taxed when it comes out, you could take a big, uh, bigger chunk out of it uh, in a given year. Like, let's say the roof on the house needs to be fixed. So I have to take some extra money out to fix the roof on the house. If you have a Roth, that won't impact your margin, your your tax rate because it's you've already paid all the taxes and you're just going to take it out tax free. So I guess as economists we'd say if you're going to have lumpy expenditures in retirement, a Roth might be good for that. While the traditional might be better suited to the smoother expenditures in retirement. And then the two accounts do have different distribution rules. With the traditional IRA, as I mentioned before, at 70 and a half you must start taking money out of it, whereas the Roth does not have that requirement. All right. Uh, the the tweeted question is a baby question. Um, they someone just had a baby and they want to ask, can they start saving for college? <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and how do you do that? Yeah. So if uh, if you've just had a baby, congratulations, and uh, definitely a good idea to start saving for college. On the and the first place to really look for that is uh, depending what state you live in, uh, the state may have a 529 plan. It's called, and the 529 plan can offer special tax advantages, helping you save for college for your child. So uh, determine you know uh, this person obviously knows where they live. Uh, they can and can go to the college. College Savings Plans Network website and look up to see if their state offers a plan and whether there are any special tax uh, features to that plan in that state. So that's one thing to do. Another thing you can do is open up a, a, a Coverdell savings account, uh, and, and that's started out as an education IRA, got renamed, and that's it's sort of like an IRA but for education. So that's the other type of account that you could open that would be specially earmarked for retirement for your child. Perfect. Um, I want to just make sure. I'm sorry, I just spoke, It was education, not retirement. (laughs) No, it's okay. Um, I I want to thank you for for being here for the half hour with me talking about all of this. It's been uh, very educational, and I think our listeners really enjoyed that, especially judging by the tweets and comments that we have. Uh, Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to talk about before we go? I could just end with a a, a couple of cliches, which would be slow and steady wins the race uh, with Uh retirement. You run a 401k over a whole career, paycheck by paycheck, so it's little by little, and better late than never. Start saving for retirement. The earlier the better, but better late than never. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. It, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I appreciate your time and energy and um, your passion for the topic. It, it's wonderful. I hope you come on again and, and, and talk to us some more at a, you know, at a later date because it's just great information, and I think people really are, have, are enjoying this. I'm getting a lot of comments saying, have her on again. <laughs> so oh, <wow. laughs> I hope you'll consider coming back. We would love to do it. We are constantly updating our data and publishing new numbers, so we'd be happy at one of those junctures to walk through our uh, focus in on 401k or IRA or um, the whole market Perfect. in general. Perfect. All right. Um, thank you. We're going to thank you so much, Sarah. I appreciate it. All right. We're going to mute for a minute here while they get situated and get Shelly on the line. Um, so we're going to have Senior Director for Financial and Industry Analysis, Shelly Antonewicz, with us. Um, she's going to join me for the rest of the show. Um, and, again, we thank Sarah Holden so much. And a huge, huge thank you to Stephanie at ICI for arranging these two shows. We had a show on Monday, and we're having this show today. For everything that Stephanie did in producing these shows, arranging the speakers, the topics, the questions, um, I'm going to go with Stephanie did like 99.9% of the work here <laughs> to make it so easy for um, me and our guests to be here today and um, and chat with all of you. So, Stephanie, thank you so much. Um, appreciate you so much. So, we're going to bring on Shelly. Shelly Antonewicz uh, is going to join us. She has her finger on the pulse of fund investment. And Shelly will talk about the latest on where fund investor money is headed in today's financial markets, including what to know about bond funds in a rising interest rate environment, trends in equity fund investment, how American fund investors are increasingly thinking globally. And she's going to touch on what to keep in mind for those times when the markets get bumpy. So we're going to bring uh, Shelly on with us here. Uh, Shelly, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you and meet you. Um, I, you, ha you are new to this role. You're not new to ICI, but um, you were promoted in, I think, January. Congratulations to Senior Director of Industry and Financial Analysis at the Institute's Research Department, succeeding um, Sean Collins. And um, you, like we were talking about, you help lead ICI's research on the structure of the fund industry and its role in the financial markets. And um, I, I, I love this quote. It says, you're a strong leader and a problem solver. That's, that's awesome. And um, you've led the work at ICI on ETFs. So we're going to learn a lot about what that is. So sometimes we lose people when we talk ETFs. They're, people don't know what those are. So I really appreciate you um, taking, your, taking time out today to, to talk to us about that. In addition, it says that you've carried out research on the structure and trends of the U.S. and the global ETF mutual fund and closed-end fund industries. Again, if those terms scare people, listen up because we're going to explain it so that you leave this call knowing what those mean. And we're going to talk about domestic and international equity and bond markets. Um, and I don't know how much you'll touch on that. But I love this. Before um, joining ICI, you served as an economist and senior economist at the Federal Reserve Board for 13 years. I'd love to know more about that. <laughs> I forgot to ask Sarah about all of her experience, too. But um, she... Um, Shelley earned a BA in management science from UC San Diego and an MS and PhD in economics from University of Wisconsin Madison. What I've gathered here is both of you know your math so well. <laughs> the topic that scared me most in school, <laughs> but um, I, I got my math down finally after getting over fear of fear of it. So many people um, have that fear when we talk math or investing or retirement, 
and so forth. And I'm hoping this show helps ease that fear. What do you think about that? I think it's great that you're, you know, teaching people the basics or trying to help them understand the basics of investing. And and while there is a lot of math that can go behind it, if you keep in mind some very simple concepts, you can do so much for your personal finances and to help yourself yourself meet your savings goals. What tell me some what are the basics? I know we covered a little bit of it with Sarah, but what do some of these terms mean? Like what is fund investing to the to the average person listening? Right. So uh, Right, I'm just going to provide a few little stats and then I'm going to get into some of what the key main benefits are that mutual funds and ETFs offer. So first, you know, mutual funds and and ETFs are already being used by individual Americans. So more than 100 million individual Americans rely on mutual funds and ETFs to meet their long-term personal financial objectives. And and we just heard Sarah discuss perhaps the most important reason that people use funds preparing for retirement. Other reasons, though, include, as she said, saving for education. Um, People will save to purchase a home or building an emergency fund. So mutual funds and ETFs allow people to achieve these goals, and they offer them three main benefits. And so I want to just go through these three benefits. One is access. The second is diversification. And the third is cost efficiency. So I'm going to just go through each one of those and and describe what they mean, to kind of demystify them. So funds provide investors access to a variety of investments and investment strategies. So if you think about it, you can buy funds that invest in U.S. stocks or U.S. bonds or both, a combination, Um, There are also funds that focus on international stocks and bonds. So you get the exposure. You think about, okay, what does my portfolio look like? Where do I want to invest? And you can go find a fund that will offer that. So I can invest in large cap U.S. equity. I can find a fund that does that. I don't have to pick all the individual stocks. Okay. That gets to our second point, which is funds provide investors diversification because they're what we call pooled investment products. So they allow investors to make smaller dollar investments and get exposure to a wider range of securities. So if I have a $1,000 to invest and I want to get exposure to stocks issued by big U.S. companies, you know, considering Apple trades right now at over $190 per share, realistically, I'm not going to be able to buy very many of these companies on my own with my $1,000, right? Um, maybe I get exposure to three companies. Uh, that's a lot of concentration risk. And if one of those companies does poorly or even goes bankrupt, it's going to have a huge negative impact on my investment. So, By pooling investors' money together, a mutual fund or ETF can have exposure to hundreds of big U.S. companies so that if one individual company in that collection of hundreds performs badly, 
it's going to have a smaller impact on the fund's overall investment return than if that one company were in my little portfolio of three stocks. So basically, my $1,000 investment in a mutual fund or ETF gets me a lot more diversification. That's what diversification means. I have exposure to a wide range of securities. Um, Cost efficiency also relates to the pooling feature of the mutual funds. Because funds deal in large volumes of securities, uh, they reduce transaction costs for their investors. So let's go back to my three-stock portfolio example. To buy these three stocks, I'm going to have to pay three separate um, commissions for each of the transactions. And I can get maybe online, um, no-help transaction costs of $5, right, a trade. So I'm going to spend $15 on the low end um, of my $1,000 investment just to get those stocks. That's 1.5% that's going to be eaten up just by transaction costs. Um, On the high end, if I need help, if I need a broker to help me, it's going to be $30 a transaction. So for my three stocks, that's $90 off of the top of my $1,000 investment, and that's 9% already gone from my initial $1,000 investment. In mutual funds, the commissions that you know are, plicit, are far, far lower because mutual funds, they pool my $1,000 investment with you know a whole bunch of other people's $1,000 investments, and then they go out and they buy those shares of the companies. And they, because they're buying in bulk, they pay far lower commissions. And these costs are spread across so many more investors. It's not just me. It's a whole bunch of other people that are sharing these costs. And so I end up paying a smaller share in a mutual fund. I think that's such a great explanation. Again, I wish I had that when I was 20 (laughs) to make some of the choices I made. So Um, I think, I mean, you know, I just wanted to, to, so the three things you need to remember about mutual funds and ETFs, access, Mm -hmm. diversification, and cost efficiency. And, uh, okay, so you're getting tweeted right off the bat as well. (laughs) Um, Someone is asking a a savings question. if, like, for example, if they have that $1,000, um, they want to know what the difference is between, for example, putting it in a savings account versus a, a mutual fund. Right. So if you put your $1,000 in a savings account, you're going to get uh, just a regular bank savings account. Um, it's a very low rate of return, right? Uh, uh, it's less than 1% now. Um, and that is because it's guaranteed it's very low risk. Right. There's there's what we call in finance this risk return relationship. And so if an investment has very low risk, it should have a fairly low return. An investment that has higher risk should have a very should have a much higher what we would call expected return that if you hold it over a long period of time you would expect to earn more. You get paid for taking on that additional risk. So she needs to think about, you know, 
the savings account is going to provide a very a, a guaranteed return, but very small return. The $1,000 in a mutual fund, she's going to need to decide, does she want to buy an equity fund or a bond fund? An equity fund has higher risk, but potentially higher return. So if you think about the historical average rate, annual rate of return on U.S. equities, it's about 7%, and that's long run. So that's over the last 25 years, you would expect to receive a 7% one-year rate of return on U.S. equities. Um, bond funds, because they're lower, bonds have lower risk, their average expected kind of rate of return is somewhere around 3 to 4%. Um, okay. So, so you need to think about where your risk profile is. So if you're a cautious person and putting your money in the stock market is going to keep you up at night, maybe you move to a less risky investment. Um, if you are, have a long time horizon and you're not going to need the money, and you can then understand, well, I might lose some money one year, but I'll make it up the next year because I've got 25 years to save, as Sarah was talking about for retirement, then you might want to put that in the higher yielding asset, the, the equities. So it's a combination of your risk profile um, the time you're going to need the money, so the sooner you need the money, you're probably going to want to put it in a lower risk asset. The longer you don't need the money, you may want to put it in a higher risk asset. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what is, what's the difference between a mutual fund, an index fund, and an ETF? Okay, I'll start with um, a mutual fund. So this is large. This is probably what if you have a 401k account, you are most likely investing in a mutual fund. Um, and with a mutual fund, you buy it at one price. And this price, so when I invest my $1,000 in the mutual fund, I'm going to get a certain number of shares in that mutual fund. And the price I pay for those shares is its end of day, what we call net asset value or NAV. So what is this NAV? It's at the end of every day so that when, you know, when you hear that the, the New York Stock Exchange is closed, okay, so all mutual funds at 4 p.m. price every single security that they have in their portfolios and they calculate then what each share of the fund is worth, and that's the price or the NAV. And when I submit my order to buy $1,000 worth of that mutual fund, um, they're going to use that price to determine uh, how, how many shares I get. And when I buy a mutual fund, I can put that price, in, that order, I'm sorry, I can put the order in any time during the day. I could do it at 10 o'clock in the morning. I can do it at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, I can do it at, you know, 3 in the afternoon. It doesn't matter. I'm going to get the same price. I am going to get the price of at 4 p.m. on the day I submitted the order. Uh, and so that is it. It's a 4 p.m. Eastern time price. 
Now, let's talk about ETFs. ETFs are different, and they're different because th the biggest difference is they trade at different prices. So it's not a one price. So ETFs trade on the secondary market, like, like uh, Apple trades on the New York Stock Exchange. Okay? An ETF has a separate price that also trades on the stock exchange. And that price can move up and down all during the day. It wiggles around. It's tied to the value of the underlying securities that are held in that ETF. So there's this tether. And that price of that ETF tends not to move too far away from where the prices of the securities are in that ETF are trading at that time. Okay, so if you think about it, like the 10 a.m. price of an ETF is going to be pretty close to the 10 a.m. prices of all the securities the ETF is holding. Right? Yep, um, that makes sense. Right. So the one thing you, you know, ETFs share similar characteristics to mutual funds. They're these pooled investment products, and they still post what that net asset value. They're still posting that at 4 p.m., but investors on the secondary market are not paying that price because I'm going to buy that, that ETF at 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to pay the 10 a.m. price. I'm not going to pay the 4 p.m. price. Okay, And that 10 a.m. price could be greater than, less than, or equal to its 4 p.m. price. So that's the intraday, it's called intraday tradability feature of ETFs. And for investors that, say, want to trade at 10 a.m., that ETF is there for them. Okay. Yep. Um, one of the things with an ETF that's really important to remember is if you want to buy and sell ETFs, you have to have a brokerage account. That is the only way that you can buy them. Now, as Sarah mentioned, a mutual fund, you don't, you don't have to have a brokerage account to buy a mutual fund. You can buy a mutual fund through your financial advisor. You can buy it directly from the fund company itself on its website. Um, but ETFs, you absolutely have to have a brokerage account. Um, the other thing to keep in mind when you're buying and selling ETFs, just as with regular stocks like Apple, IBM, Facebook, you have to be you have to trade smart so you have to understand how the various types of orders you would put in can affect the price that you're going to get for that ETF so you need to understand things like bid ask spread and you need to understand what a market order is you need to understand risks of stop-loss orders. And there are lots of tutorials out there um, to describe these basic trading features. So people shouldn't be scared of ETFs, shouldn't be scared of the fact they trade in the secondary market. But they're, you know, if they're going to invest in ETFs, they're going to have to understand they're responsible for trading it. Um, and so they want to be a smart trader. They're going to have to educate themselves. 
a little bit more than um, maybe someone who might have that 401k and the options right in front of them. Is that what you mean by that? This is a little bit I, more on your own? Yeah, the the ETF is uh, um, a little bit more on your own. If you have a financial advisor, your financial advisor may recommend ETFs to you and, you know, as a what you would do as a client for your financial advisor is is ask them about okay what what happens in trading of ETFs you need to ask some good questions to your financial advisor to really ensure that they also understand how they're going to trade um ETFs in the secondary market so you have a bunch of questions here that are being tweeted from a recent college graduate um, mm-hmm. And do you, do you mind answering a few more questions? Sure. Um, all right. So this college graduate has a new job, and on the 401k uh, question is going to come back up again. Um, their question is: <clears throat> Do ETFs appear? They're they're getting all the information. They're just starting their new job, when, and they can't sign up just yet, or something. Um, when they when their choices appear, do ETFs appear in the choices of things that they can invest in, and do ETFs have that same approach of you're your in this for the long run? So um, in a I hope f- I got that question summarized yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> I, it's a question we get frequently. ETFs are rarely in 401k plans, um, and that is because not many 401k plans have what's called a brokerage window, the ability to get a brokerage account. Now, remember I said ETFs need you have to have a brokerage account to trade ETFs and not many 401k plans offer what's called a brokerage window so I am going to guess if uh, that most likely they will not have ETFs as an option um, in their 401k plan unless their plan happens to be one of the few that offers a brokerage window Okay. Um, so mutual right um the the um and e t f investors also um retail e t f investors long term view as well um where you're going to put in an asset you're gonna decide sort of the sectors you want to invest in, U.S. large cap, some international, maybe some small cap exposure, and you're going to create a portfolio. You're going to buy a selection of ETFs, and then maybe once a year you'll rebalance that. It would be the same thing you would do if you were in a in a for enough mutual funds you would always look at your mutual fund investments and then decide rebalance those if i need to yeah okay okay yeah that makes a lot of sense as well do um okay so we have a question this one was emailed to me um prior to the show this is a an email from a, a family friend and this is from a male in in age 40s uh, lower 40s, and um, I'm not sure we should ask this. It's like I feel like it might be a can of worms, so I'm going to ask it anyway, and you can pass if if you think it might be too okay. much for this. They want to know what a hedge fund is. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. So alternative well, investments and hedge funds. Right. No, the can so, of worms are okay for this. Not really. I mean, I can, I can describe um, the difference. So mutual funds and exchange-traded funds are regulated under what's called the Investment Company Act of 1940, which means they have a lot of investor protections that are built 
into them. Um, things that will protect investors like custody of assets. The, um, uh, the fund company does not have control over the assets. That's at what we call a third-party custodian. So they can't, like, go get the money and run off with that, you know. Um, there are also other protections um, on uh, – there, uh, there's limits on leverage. There is other investments that funds are not allowed to make, so they have a limit on the amount of illiquid in types of securities or investments that they can make. Um, and whereas hedge funds don't have those restrictions. Okay. Uh, so so hedge funds have more ability to leverage, use leverage, um, and they also have more ability to invest in more illiquid type assets. Perfect. I'm leaving it at that. Um, okay. <laughs> we're going to keep going. Um, can you give us some insight based on your data as to what other U.S. fund investors are you know, are directing money as of late? Like, what do we learn um, from fund investment flows in the fir- what do we learn from fund investment flows in the first half of half of the year? Um, are investors pulling money out due to fears of trade wars or interest rates or market volatility or mm-hmm. what's what's mm-hmm. happening? Well, overall, we're still seeing money come in uh, to funds, both mutual funds and ETFs this year. Um, That pace, though, is down about half from where it was in 2017 at this point. And, you know, the place where we've actually seen the biggest drop-off in inflows has been in equity funds. Um, So both domestic equity and international equity as well. Um, Could investors be reallocating some money away or just kind of holding back from investing in, say, you know, in particular domestic equity? Certainly, they could be partly reacting to an increase in the stock market volatility. Um, If you remember, the S&P 500 was up almost 20% in 2017. That's a pretty big run-up. And investors may have gotten a little bit nervous about, you know, the the valuations, how high they were, were they justified. And so news, news like, oh, is inflation going to creep up faster than expected? Is the Federal Reserve going to have to tighten monetary policy faster? Um, are we going to have trade conflicts? Because all of those things affect the macroeconomy in the United States, and that then affects profits that companies make, and that affects their prices of their their stocks, basically, in the stock market. Um, and interest rates affect prices of bonds. So, you know, we we have seen investors pulling back a little bit this first half of the year, and it could be in response to these developments. Um, one other data that we also look at show U.S. households were putting more money into checking and savings accounts in the first part of the year. Um, So that could be an indication. We see a drop-off in fund inflows, people still saving through funds, but 
not at as high a rate as they were last year, and an increase in sort of more cash-type assets. How are you on time? Do you have a few more minutes? Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I can talk about bond funds if you like. Um, I would I love for you to keep going. And um, I, I have 27 more minutes with you, but I don't know how much time you have. <laughs> I mean, our, sh- our showtime technically ended a few minutes ago. Uh-huh. So I just want to make sure I'm super respectful of your time if I need sure. to schedule a diff- another show with you. Or do you want to, do you have five or even 10 more minutes? Sure. Or do yes. Okay, perfect. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please keep, keep going because people are loving this. Okay, great. So, you know, bond funds, let's talk about bond funds. Um, I think one thing that um, actually didn't surprise us here at ICI in the research department, but may have surprised market participants or other people that comment on the fund industry, um, we've continued in 2018 to see strong inflows into bond funds. Um, they're down a little bit from 2017, but they are positive, and they are over $100 billion so far in the first half of 2018, which is wow. very strong considering if you look at the broad-based bond indices, they're down about 1.5% this year. So investors are continuing to invest in bond funds even though their returns are slightly negative. And I think, you know, what the way that we're explaining this is that we believe part of this steady demand for bond funds has been demographics. Um, so right now, if you look at working age adults, so people 20 years old and over, um, 21% of those um, people are over 65 right now. That share is projected to rise to 28% by 2030. So we've got this baby boom generation, this large glut of people that are aging. And we know that as people age, they gradually shift their investments from historically higher risk assets you know, like stocks, to lower risk assets like bonds. So, you know, we expect to see this demand for bond funds going forward to continue to be bolstered um, by the demand that's coming from the baby boom generation. Um, And we would expect to see it even with a continued gradual increase in interest rates. And really, I think that this year we cannot say we've had a shock to the bond market, we haven't. We haven't seen a huge spike in interest rates. What we've seen is a gradual drifting up of interest rates. It's really interesting. So it's that kind of research that you you do. And when you I have a question, what when you gather all that information, um, where does that go? What do you do with all of that information that you gather, like information like that? Um, So the fund flows we publish on our website. So we publish weekly fund flows for mutual funds and ETFs. We also publish monthly fund flows. Um, A lot of this other information where we're looking at the fund 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 flows and Mm -hmm. sort of trying to think about what could be motivating those fund flows, what are those factors that could be driving that demand, we tend to go and look at some of this other information and see if a consistent 
story or a consistent pattern comes out that will support, you know, what direction the fund flows are going. And then sometimes we will often do our own little videos um, that Stephanie produces uh, here. Yes, and we put those out on our on our website. Uh, we also have an ICI Viewpoints blog where we will occasionally put out um, a, a fund flows kind of update, what's going on. Our fact book is a very good resource. There we look at the entire year of fund flows, and we talk about the financial market developments. We talk about the macroeconomic developments, and we put a lot of this extra information in there to help describe what we think has been driving fund flows over the last year. And if it's a continuation of a pattern that we've seen for many years, we, we talk about those trends as well. So people can if people want to really are interested in the analytics and all the research and so forth because you you're just a, again a wealth of information um, the the websites the the social media all these all these all this, these places this information is is there a uh, like a mailing list to join is that on ici.org oh, um, that you'd you like to direct on, people to Yeah, well, you can go to www.ici.org and then our main page comes up, and you can go. Our blog is ICI Viewpoints, and it's right there on the page. And you can just click on that, and you'll be taken to our most recent blogs. But it's all organized by topic. So if you wanted to look at blogs that have been written on exchange-traded funds, it's, you'd click on that link, and it takes you, sorts all of those blogs out for you to look at. If you wanted to look at blogs on bond funds, so there's a whole bunch of different categories. Um, you can also subscribe to our ICI Viewpoints list, and you'll be pinged when a new ICI Viewpoints is put up. Perfect. Um, I wanted to, before we go, I wanted to ask you about just globally, I, and I don't know quite where to go with that question other than I just keep seeing things go more and more global. Do you want to touch that, or you can sure. Shut the no, question I can. Down I too. can talk about that. Um, I think you know um, one thing that that uh, we've noticed in the United States um, is that investors, U.S. investors, have started have over the last 15 years have really moved away from home, what we call home country bias. Uh, so you know, investors tend to buy you know what they know best, um, and that kind of encourages home country bias. Um, you buy companies that you know that are in the U.S., so you go and you're going to invest in you know, U.S. large-cap stocks, right? Um, but I think in the last 15 years, we've seen investors move more and more into internationally focused funds or even just world funds. And world funds will include some U.S. exposure, but they're going to include other regions' exposure as well, like Asia and Europe. Um, and I think that technological advances and also the opening up of the global capital markets has helped uh, professional asset managers get more access to these international markets and then be able to offer these types of funds to U.S. investors. So there's supply, 
that's the supply part of it. There's more of these funds out there for U.S. investors because of technology and open, more open global capital markets. From the demand side, um, U.S. investors have increasingly invested in these international or world funds because of the benefits of greater diversification. So going back to that, one of the very first points we talked about, diversification. So if you, so let's let's think about this. If the U.S. is in an economic slump, but Europe is still doing well an investor with a globally diversified portfolio would expect to have better returns than an investor who has all their money invested in U.S. securities or in a, in a fund that's all U.S. securities. So it goes towards diversification. Um, and investors that use financial advisors we have seen financial advisors moving more into international funds because they realize they're trained. They realize the benefits of diversification and diversifying globally. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. And there are just two more things, and we're going to lump them into maybe one if you can if if sure. you can do that for me. I'm not sure how you can how you can, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, I bet you can. If Let's talk about CHOP and let's talk about fees. Um, two things that people worry about a lot. Um, the fees, the thing, you know, what the fund fees, what's it going to cost for me to do this or what, what's the cost of investing in this? And then also the CHOP um, with the market market CHOP. Um, okay. you, you see it go up and down and all around. And mm-hmm. what, what are the perspectives there that people should think about with those two things? And anything right. else that people might, might worry about or, you know, want to talk about? So um, first, let's talk about fund fees. Um, The fund market is ultra competitive. So expenses that investors pay to mutual fund managers, to ETF managers, have been declining substantially and steadily over the long term. Um, So, for example, an average expense ratio right now on on an equity mutual fund is just 0.59%, so less than 1%. Um, And that's down from over 1%, so you would have paid for that same equity fund over 1% 20 years ago. Um, And that competition isn't just in equity funds. We also see bond fund expense ratios coming down. Um, So funds are continually competing on their expense ratios because – and rightly so, investors focus a lot of attention on the fees they pay. And so funds know that they have to have a competitively priced product that also delivers performance in order to attract these investors. Um, so really, fund, fund um, investors need to look at, when you're choosing between funds, you want to look at performance and fees across comparable funds. Um, And then choppiness in the market. So I think one of the things we hear about in the financial press a lot is, oh, my goodness, mutual fund investors or ETF investors are going to panic and run if the market declines or if interest rates go up. Um, You know, I, I could say for advice to people, stay the course. 
but, you know, really fund investors, and we look at this data over long periods of time, fund investors have shown time and again that they have long-term views. They don't panic. They don't run to immediately redeem 100% of their equity fund if the stock market falls. Um, sure, investors, you know, temporarily or investors are going to adjust their portfolios on the edges or they're going to hold up maybe from continuing to invest in a particular asset class, like what we're seeing right now in domestic equity funds. But these movements are really quite small relative to the amount of assets that are in funds. So it's good to rebalance. It's good to reallocate when asset prices change. But And that is very rational to do. The one thing that we don't see people doing is panicking and wholesale selling their entire account. Um, that's not, we don't see that. that yeah. What a, what a great uh, show having both of you guys on. <laughs> Amazing information. I hope everybody has totally enjoyed this. And um, I, Shelley, thank you for staying 15 extra minutes to cover these questions and all the questions we had from Twitter and email and LinkedIn as well. Sure. Um, just so helpful. And I hope you'll come on again as well. Um, and uh, just was there anything that we didn't cover that you want to talk about to to close us out? No, I think we've we've uh, covered, we've covered it, almost right? everything. <laughs> um, the only thing we didn't cover was active versus index, you know, or what is an index mutual fund. Um, so we we get this question a lot, you know, when when you hear act, what's the difference between active and index? So active generally means you're investing in a fund that's what's called actively managed. So actively managed funds are going to use the money that you give them, and they're going to buy and sell stocks and bonds that the managers themselves have researched. So they have discretion um, over the securities, the names, the securities, what they're going to buy. Um, and as one of their investment goals, um, active managers will select securities that they believe are going to outperform their their segment or their niche of the market. Um, index funds, on the other hand, are managed to track the performance of a specific index. So an index fund that tracks the S&P 500 index is going to give you the return of the S&P 500 index over the time you hold it. Um, and that's the difference. Perfect. Again, perfect. Great. Thank you. I know you didn't. You said you didn't strive for perfection in any, you know, in in, in all these things, but I think you've done a perfect job. <laughs> so Great. I just Thank want to you. say that, and I, I really, so best ever you, and so many tips here to help people be their best um, with their finances and investments and retirements and everything. That I, I thank you both for being so. Um, well-spoken and thoughtful in your responses and, and your additional answers and questions and everything and, and helping us all out. So, And, um, again, please thank Stephanie. I can't thank Stephanie enough for all of, uh, for all of her help in producing these shows. And, Shelley, um, I'm terrible at closing shows because I never want to leave, as you can tell by the 15 <laughs> minutes extra I've, I've kept you here because it's fun to have you on and, and speak with you. But out of respect for your time, thank you very much for being with us today and everybody here at Best ever you in our community. Thanks you both, Sarah Holden and um, Shelly Antonewicz, for uh, being with us today to give us all of this information. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. 
Thank you for having us. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. And to everybody listening, please follow up with any questions that you have. I know here at the end we got one, what is the Securities and Exchange Commission? (laughs) So um, we're not going to have time to answer that right now, but we'll follow up and maybe post the answer to that um, with this show. And um, please look at ICI.org. And they're also on Twitter. It's Investment Company Institute. They're on Twitter at ICI. And then also on Facebook, you can get to them two ways on Facebook. You can type in the full Investment Company Institute, or you can type in the at sign ICI.org, and they come up as well. Um, They do use the hashtag ICI. So anytime you see hashtag ICI, you can just simply click on that from any social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, or uh, wherever else it might be on Google. Um, And that will pull up the latest tweets and trends and information that's coming up under that particular hashtag. So it's a great use of their hashtag. I know we hashtag best ever you. They use ICI. Or um, you can look at their Twitter feed and see what other hashtags they might have going on as well. So again, we appreciate you all listening. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks um, both to Sarah and Shelly, and again to Stephanie for both of these shows, and and, um, Susan and Tammy as well who came in on Monday so thanks everybody have a great day and I'm actually going to be quiet now (laughs) thank you so much for listening take care thanks for listening to the best ever you show want more visit us at besteveryou.com be your best and keep it real confident successful caring and beautiful every day with best ever you